0: Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you'll hear from a panel of expert speakers. We'll allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your tone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Norma. And I too would like to welcome everyone to today's program, Current Perspectives on the Treatment of Relapsed Refractory Chronic Lymphocytic Leukemia, or CLL. And today's program is a collaborative effort between the CLL Society, Inc., and Cancer Care. And we are delighted to be working together on this program today. And you'll be hearing more about this um, as the program uh, evolves, actually. Um, and I have to say that um, today's program is supported by Pharmacytics, LLC, an ABD company, and Janssen Biotech, Inc., administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC. There also are also many of you on the call today, actually lots of you, and actually it is because of the collaboration with the CL Society and many other organizations, blood cancer organizations, as well as cancer organizations, that we've been able to reach so many of you. And we have over 300 participants on the call today. You come from all over the United States, from both rural, urban, suburban, and frontier communities. And we also today have quite a few people internationally on the call, um, from Austria, Canada, Egypt, England, Germany, Norway, Russia, and Switzerland. So, really, a bit of a global call as well. So, it's really credit to all of you that you've chosen to spend this next hour with us. Um, we have just the very best speakers on our program today, and I want to begin. This is our first speaker, and our first speaker is Dr. Jennifer Brown. Dr. Brown is professor of medicine, Harvard Medical School, director of CLL Center, Dana Farber Cancer Institute. Dr. Brown will be addressing an overview of CLL, including testing to inform your treatment choice, first line treatment options, treatment of relapsed refractory CLL, and communicating with the healthcare team about your quality of life concerns. It's my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Brown.
0: Thank
2: you. I'm very happy to be on the call today. I hope everyone is staying well in this pandemic situation we find ourselves in. And Our topic today, of course, is CLL which as you know stands for chronic lymphocytic leukemia. We usually identify CLL in people when they're feeling fine. Most patients are diagnosed when they have no symptoms, in fact, usually based on a routine white blood cell count that they might have at their primary care doctor or in another doctor's office. Sometimes people will also show up with lymph nodes, most commonly in the neck, which is another way that we diagnose people. But mostly people are feeling well, and have a blood test and are found to have excess white blood cells circulating in the blood and that's why CLL is called the leukemia because that's what the word means that there are the excess cells in the blood sometimes there's confusion is CLL a leukemia or is it a lymphoma but the cells in the blood usually referring to leukemia and cells in a lymph node more lymphoma and CLL It's one disease. It's not two kinds of diseases, but it's appropriately considered both leukemia and a lymphoma, more or less. I like to think of it a little more as a lymphoma myself, and that's because biologically, it's most related to other kinds of lymphoma, even though it tends to be more in the blood than those other kinds of lymphoma. We know that it comes from a normal cell of the immune system that makes antibodies to fight infection, and that's a B cell. And most times when B cells form cancer, they form a lymphoma type cancer. And so that's why CLL is more related to other lymphomas. Now, if the diagnosis is suggested by the elevated white blood cell count, we can actually establish it just with another blood test, a test called flow cytometry. And generally, not much other testing is absolutely required at diagnosis. For example, it's not required that a CAT scan be done or a bone marrow biopsy be done unless there are other problems other than the elevated white blood cell count. So the initial diagnosis is fairly simple. There are a number of other blood tests that we like to do that help us think about the disease and that influence our treatment choice, which we'll be talking about more later. And those are tests that describe really the prognosis of the CLL, how quickly it's likely to move versus maybe staying very slow moving for a long time. A significant percentage of people with CLL, perhaps 20, 25%, may not actually need treatment during their life for the disease. And very few people need treatment at the time of diagnosis, in fact. The reason for this is... Basically, because we have actually done studies comparing people who were treated right at diagnosis to those who were not, and it was found that the outcomes were really very similar, but there were more side effects in the people who were treated sooner. And so that's established this policy that we have called watch and wait, where people who are feeling well without symptoms and who don't have other problems with their blood counts or other problems with large lymph nodes we observe them. And then that can go on actually for many years in some cases, but sometimes it's a much shorter time that it goes on for. And understanding that and how likely that is to happen one way or the other is what we use the other blood tests for. So the most important blood test initially is something called FISH. This is a test that looks for chromosome abnormalities in the cells of the CLL. And in particular for one very important one called 17P. That refers to loss of the short arm of chromosome 17 in the CLL cells. And that's associated with loss of a gene called P53. It's also possible for this gene to be mutated, still present but altered. And there's a separate test required for that. And those two are most important because those really guide us toward the newer targeted therapies and away from chemoimmunotherapy. The other very important test is called IGHB, And that's the test that looks actually at the CLL cell itself, at the antibody gene in the CLL cell. Remember, we said CLL cells come from lymphocyte cells, B cells, and those are the types of cells that normally make antibodies. So the CLL cell has an antibody gene in it. And the way that looks, depending on how mutated it is, how altered it is from what you were born with, helps us predict the behavior of the disease as well. And with the IGHV, the mutated kind is actually the slower moving kind and the kind that tends to be more favorable. And so these tests, if you see a CLL specialist, you will get these tests even when you're first diagnosed. But it's not absolutely necessary because we don't decide not to do the watch and wait policy based on the test. We still do the watch and wait policy and we only start to treat when problems start to develop, like symptoms, like lower blood counts, where people become anemic or their platelets are low, which is something we call thrombocytopenic, or if there are large lymph nodes that are causing problems. And so as that progression starts to happen toward treatment, that's when you absolutely need to have these tests, because that, they influence significantly how we think about the treatment. Now, one other point about watch and wait. There are a couple of things I always like to point out to people that it's important to do while you're in the watch and wait phase. So CLL does have some other risks and these include risks of infection and risks of getting other cancers. And so we like to do everything we can to prevent those things from happening. So in the case of infection, we like to give vaccines, an annual flu vaccine always, and there are two pneumococcal vaccines. We usually give both and then repeat one of them every five years. And then with the new shingles vaccine, we don't have data in CLL patients, but I do tend to offer it to my CLL patients, particularly as we know that there's increased risk for shingles in people with CLL. And so getting these vaccines done prior to treatment is really very useful. And then the other issue, the risk of other cancers, I always recommend that people do all their recommended cancer screening. Skin cancers in particular are very common in people with CLL and can be worse than in people without CLL. So I recommend getting a dermatologic screen and keeping up with that on a regular basis as frequently as the dermatologist recommends. And then also mammograms, pap smears, colonoscopies, et cetera, staying on top of those. And so those are things that you can do right from diagnosis to optimize your well-being and prevent issues that sometimes arise in the context of the CLL. Now, but let's say that your CLL has moved on and is progressing toward treatment. So what are the first-line treatment options? Well, these have really expanded a lot in the last five to 10 years, which is very exciting and with very effective options. And so right now, I would say we have three major categories of first-line treatments. So one, which was the first to come along, is the more traditional chemoimmunotherapy treatment. And those are generally infusions. They involve some IV drugs that target cells that are dividing rapidly, as well as usually an antibody drug as well, something rituximab being the most common, for example. And so generally these are done in cycles where you get the treatment for two or three days every month. And it's generally up to six cycles, and then they're done. The most effective one is called FCR, but that can only be given to patients who are quite young and fit, who don't have a lot of other medical problems. BR is also an effective one, but not, it's generally better tolerated, not quite as effective as FCR. Now, chemoimmunotherapy is being used less and less as we have new targeted drugs that work especially better in high-risk disease. We know that FCR, for example, in very low-risk disease, the mutated IgVH, the favorable IGBH, can result in very, very long remission, which six months of therapy for then more than half of people are still in remission 12 years later. So that's a very strong benefit for that patient population. But for people with higher-risk disease or older patients who can't get FCR, generally the benefits of chemoimmunotherapy are not so prolonged and in particular if it's unmutated IGVH or 17p deletion the 17p deletion we never use chemoimmunotherapy the unmutated IGVH depending on where you live in the world it might still be considered but in the united states we've been moving away from it for unmutated IGVH as well as older patients even with mutated IGVH because of tolerability issues so what then are we using well so the other two categories of drugs oral drugs we have the BTK inhibitors, which the first drug you've probably heard of is abrutinib, And now we also have a Calabrutinib, which is a second-generation drug. These are oral indefinite therapies. They don't get completely rid of the disease. In fact, the white count may go up when you start. But they control the disease for very extended periods. And so that's why, in general, we have to stay on the drug for as long as possible as it's working on your disease. Then the other category of oral drug is the BCL-2 inhibitor, and that's venetoclax. And in the frontline setting, we usually give that with an antibody called obinutuzumab. Obinutuzumab is very similar to rituximab, but it's a newer generation antibody, and it seems to be more potent. In fact, in a head-to-head trial, it resulted in longer remissions than rituximab-related therapy. So the venetoclax is the oral drug, and the obinutuzumab is an infusion, and the venetoclax is given for one year with six months of the map. And so in distinction from the BTK inhibitors, that actually results in deeper remissions, and we stop after one year, and then people are observed again, a model more similar to the chemoimmunotherapy model. Now, both the BTK and BCL2 inhibitors have shown longer remissions compared to chemoimmunotherapy, certainly in 17P 53 mutated patients, in patients whose disease has other higher risk markers, and in unmutated IgVH patients. In the mutated patients, at early follow-up, there's not much difference, but as longer follow-up goes on, we may be starting to see emerging differences. Now, I'm noticing that I'm probably – or I have a few more minutes, don't I? Yes. So let me just state my general – so those are the frontline options chemoimmunotherapy, BTK inhibitors, and BCL2 inhibitors. And then in the relapse refractory setting, our the way we think about this has changed a lot now that we have these categories of drugs. I would say first that we very rarely or almost never use chemoimmunotherapy in the relapse refractory setting anymore. Certainly not if the person has had chemoimmunotherapy frontline unless they've had a very, very long remission and no changes with their CLL markers, with, which Dr. Shadman's going to talk to you about, but very rarely. And so we're really looking at a BTK inhibitor or a BCL-2 inhibitor. And now there's also a third class we can con- consider, an oral drug as well, a PI3 kinase inhibitor. That's also oral and continuous, so the model is most similar to the BTK inhibitors. The first drug there is called idelalisib, and then a newer drug called duvelisib is also approved. We tend to use these after we use the BTK and BCL2 inhibitors, just because they tend to have some more difficult side effects for a subset of people. Although people who, there's a subset of people who have almost no side effects, but they, they can just be a little tricky. Now, the way we think about this now is really based on the therapy that you had first, or the subsequent therapy, how good your response was, and then why the treatment was stopped. So if your first-line therapy was a chemoimmunotherapy, and you had a long remission, you can have a BTK inhibitor, or you can have a BCL-2 venetoclax. Usually, we give it with rituxin for two years in the relapse setting. So again, the BTK inhibitor would be a continuous pill that you take, like your high blood pressure pill, and the BCL-2 inhibitor, venetoclax with rituxin would be two years of the pill, and then stop. So then you get a break. For people who've had a BTK inhibitor as their earlier line therapy, if their disease progressed during the BTK inhibitor, then we really turn to venetoclax. We know that venetoclax works well in that case. If, though, you came off the BTK inhibitor because of some, you know, adverse problems, some side effects, and particularly if your disease didn't progress real soon, you had some time after that, you have somewhat more options again. You could still do venetoclax. You could perhaps try a different BTK inhibitor. The newer one, acalabrutinib, sometimes works in people who had side effects with abrutinib, the first one. And then also there are the PI3 kinase inhibitors. And then for people who have venetoclax frontline, since that stops after one year, if you have a nice long remission, you can probably do it again, like we used to do with chemo. Although we don't really know that yet, we're just starting. The follow-up is still short, so we're just starting to learn about that. Or alternatively, there are the BTK inhibitors, so there's more or less a set of drugs that we're now using, and we're trying to understand the best order in which to use them for different people and for the CLL that different people have. So I think that's my time, and I'll stop and turn it over to Dr. Shadman.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Brown. You are wonderful, just superb, and we definitely look forward to people asking you questions during the Q&A, so thank you. Never can have enough of you. Thank you. Thanks so much. Um, And our next speaker is Dr. Mazur Shadman, and Dr. Shadman is physician, Seattle Cancer Care Alliance, assistant professor, Division of Medical Oncology, University of Washington, School of Medicine, assistant professor, Clinical Research Division, Fed Hutchinson Cancer Research Center. Dr. Shadman will be addressing the importance of retesting and determining treatment for second and third line treatments in the context of COVID 19, current perspectives on new and emerging treatments for CLL, clinical trial updates and the role of clinical trials, and key questions to ask your healthcare team and re ask them, um, your healthcare team, including telehealth appointments, social distancing. So I'm going to now turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Shadman.
3: Hi everyone, uh, it's a pleasure to be here, and I hope everybody's safe. Uh, so I have 15 minutes to cover a number of topics, and uh, I will I would like to start with CLL kind of a specific uh, topics that I have, and then at the end I will cover some common questions and uh, recommendations regarding or the way we manage CLL these days in the during the pandemic. So to Talk about the importance of retesting our patients in terms of their disease risk uh, as dr Brown mentioned we when we get to the next, second line or beyond our lines of treatment, we are basically dealing with a situation where a patient had a prior line of treatment it could have been chemo immunotherapy or sometimes uh, one of the novel agents and Uh, For for different reasons, patients could be in the second line. Maybe their first treatment was not effective, maybe they had a remission and now years later they're coming back because their disease is active, and sometimes there's just simply the issue of tolerance and having side effects from prior treatments. So what's important to know is that the, the characteristics, the genetic characteristics of CLL cells, the cancer cells, can change over time. And it can especially change in the setting of the treatments that we provide for the patient. What does that mean? So we talked about uh, looking at the CLL cells at the chromosome level, and uh, one of the important uh, pieces of information that we look before we make a treatment decision is to know what kind of chromosome abnormalities are are we dealing with. So that can change over time. For example, if, if we have a patient without... Uh, deletion in chromosome 17, the 17P deletion, that's one of the most important factors we look at. Uh, And they did not have it before starting their first-line treatment. And when they come to us needing a second or third-line treatment, we need to look again because these are dynamic markers and can change over time. And having that information is critical because not only we will know more about this disease behavior, we also use that information to to make a clinical decision in terms of the type of treatment that we're using and maybe the the way we monitor that patient, the type of conversations that we have with the patient in terms of future treatment directions and things like that. So it would be very important to ask your physicians uh to to get that updated information now some of those markers or i would say maybe one marker the ighv mutation status does not change so that's that's not something that we would be repeating any every time that we we um reassess the the, the disease but the chromosome changes and these days we uh, if you go to see a CLL specialist we have uh, a, a panel of uh, g- genetic markers that we would, we would check before uh, uh, before uh, making clinical decisions. So it's very important to have that updated information as as you start thinking about new lines of treatment. Um, it's always important to think about clinical trials for CLL. This is a disease that we 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 don't call curable yet. So until we get there, there's there's room for improvement, and the only way that we make uh, progress is by Participating in clinical trials and making sure that, number one, as patients we have access to uh, better drugs potentially, and as investigators we we try to make our treatments better, better tolerated, and also more effective. And that takes me to the next topic that I wanted to cover, and that's really what is the perspective and where where are we going with CLO? Are we are we done? I mean, we have a number of great treatment options and. Um, you know, should we stop here and should we just use those drugs? Clearly the answer is no for many reasons. Number one, there are still um, patients with CLL uh, who uh, don't respond to these novel agents as good as we expect them to respond like other patients. So there is room for improvement in terms of making these treatments and making CLL treatments more effective. And because of that, we have uh, new classes of CLL drugs that are currently under development. And we are targeting, uh, uh, going for new targets in the CLL cells, for example. We are working on medications and drugs that, for example, work similarly to venetoclax, which is a BCL-2 inhibitor by targeting a different protein very similar to BCL-2 called MCL-1, for example. We have now other medications that go for the same target that ibrutinib and acalabrutinib uh, uh, go for, but they kind of uh, attach to that protein differently and work differently, meaning that even in patients who had exposure to ibrutinib or acalabrutinib in the past and their disease stopped responding, there is a hope that maybe these new agents could be effective for, for those patients. and. So that's that's one area that we're trying to uh, make progress, making our drugs more effective. Number two is to just make our drugs better tolerated. And you know, ibrutinib is a great drug, and uh, but it does come with some side effects. Some patients, uh, despite the fact that enjoy they enjoy um, great remissions from the CLL standpoint, but they have to deal with some of the side effects of that drug. Because of that, uh, a drug like acalabrutinib uh, is basically now was developed and is now available as an option and, you know, probably as effective and uh, with, with, with uh, fewer side effects and lower rates of uh, adverse events. So, that area is expanding. We are working on a number of new drugs with with the same, basically, thought process, so using the same... Uh, efficacy, and hopefully even better, but the focus is to make him better tolerated and safer. Acalabrutinib uh, is uh, already FDA approved for CLL, for first line and second line, and uh, in basically all lines of treat- treatment. There is a, another drug called Xanabrutinib, for example, already approved for mantle cell lymphoma, a different disease. but. Clinical trials are um, um, uh, basically have been done, and hopefully, and maybe we get we get that drug also approved for CLO. We have same examples for other classes of drugs. So for example, uh, drugs like idelalisib and duvelisib are already available and approved, but we may get, for example, another drug from that family that could come with fewer side effects called umbralisib. So, really, the idea for this uh, second. Um, goal of ours is to make these drugs better tolerated. The third uh, category, I would say, uh, to make these treatments time limited. So, when we think about chemoimmunotherapy, one of the reasons that we still think about it and talk about it is the fact that, as Dr. Brown mentioned, you, you, you give the treatment or you receive the treatment for six months uh, in cycles, and then after you stop treatment our patients really enjoy the time that they don't have disease they don't have active disease and they also are not taking the medication that's that's important so the idea is to not only get rid of the chemotherapy part so use the novel agents but uh instead of having our patients or asking our patients to take these drugs uh forever we make those treatments also time limited meaning that we can we can offer them for a year or two and then stop those treatments that way, we've offered a chemotherapy-free treatment and also a time-limited therapy. And you know, venetoclax in combination with some antibodies uh, uh, can potentially give us that option. But these days, we're trying to even make those combinations stronger by combining some of these novel agents together. And there are a number of clinical trials that are ongoing in different institutions and nationally and internationally. And that would be one of the other goals that we we have. One last thing about some the novel uh, treatment options for for really high-risk CLL population. Here we're talking about patients who have de- have seen and have used uh, maybe one or two lines of these novel agents, and we still struggle to control their CLL. And here these days we talk about some immunotherapy approaches for. For CLL and kind of trying to use patient's own immune system and, in a way, trained trained the immune system to to attack the CLL uh, enemy in their body. And you're probably familiar with the, at least the term of CAR T cell therapy. That's that's but basically simply a, a modified T cell. T cells are think of them as immune cells and soldiers in our body. And their their main job is to fight infections. And we are basically training those cells to also direct their uh, strength towards the cancer cells. And uh, for some other diseases, uh, so some aggressive lymphomas, the CAR T therapy is already FDA approved. For CLL, there are clinical trials that are ongoing, and hopefully that will become an option as a standard treatment, but uh, patients could talk to their physicians about uh, immunotherapy options, namely CAR T-cell therapy for for their disease. And if that's uh, appropriate, they can can get more information from their physicians. So I think with that, I I would like to move to to the hot topic of these days. And, you know, of course, we are uh, in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, For some of us, uh, maybe we're uh, kind of starting to see some um, uh, slowing down in our areas we have our audience here is uh from what I understand is from all over the world so it 's very difficult to um, make a uh, kind of one one type of a recommendation for everybody. What I would say is that the way we're treating our c l l patients these days is basically making and using the common sense uh in general. the principle is to try to minimize our patients' exposure to a healthcare facility, meaning that if I'm doing anything to make my patient get out of their their home, get on a car, come to the lab, then get on an elevator, come to my clinic, see me, and maybe get a CAT scan, some some of them, and then go back home, here I'm exposing them to uh, risk of contracting the infection. So, do I have to accept that risk, and does my patient have to, have to accept that risk? For some patients, yes. I mean, there are rare cases or patients uh, that, for example, they, they absolutely need treatment in in a in, in few days, and, you know, have, of course, I have to deal with it, and they have to accept the risk, and we do it. Majority of CLL patients are not in that situation. I'll give you a few examples. So if I have a patient who is, uh, for example, is on watch and wait a strategy, and I'm seeing them every, let's say, three, four, five, six months, and I know they're doing well, and so for some patients, we've gone through the list of our patients and decided that instead of seeing this patient in April, let's just, just reschedule it for June. We don't even... We don't even need to do a telehealth visit with them. So that would be the extreme case of not really putting the patient at any risk. There we go with the next level, and there may be patients who, for whom I'm just monitoring their platelet count, for example. I mean, I have asked those patients, especially ones who come from two or three hours, of, uh, um, they have to travel two or three hours to get to our facility, and we have many patients like that. Sometimes I send them to a lab close to their home. We make sure that we get the results, and then we schedule a telehealth visit. So not only I talk to them and I ask about their symptoms. I kind of saved them a trip to my my clinic, and, uh, you know, that way I have the information that I need to have and we have the conversation. And so I guess my point is it's really de- it depends on the the clinical situation that the patient is in and the, the level of the pandemic in your area. So in Seattle, for example, right now, we are starting to go back to our routine, uh, in-person clinic visits, but there are, even in the U.S., there are cities that are still uh, in the middle or they're expecting their surge coming in the next few weeks. I, I, so that, that, the, the strategy could be different. Very quickly, a few principles. You know, we, we most of the time we should be able to delay starting treatment for our CLL patients for a few weeks or even months. A lot of you know that when you start your first-line treatment or even a second-line it took months for you to to kind of uh, come up with an agreement with your physician to decide on a new treatment, for example. That means that for for most of our patients, we do have that luxury of waiting a few weeks to kind of at least get away from the the peak of the p- pandemic for in our area, if you're, if that's what we're dealing with. And in those selected patients in whom we have to find uh, start treatment. Again, we are lucky to have access to many types of novel drugs, so we would usually pick a drug that does not require infusion, does not require admission to the hospital, and it's basically easy to start and easy to to continue only if that's a reasonable treatment for for our patients so uh, you know have I started somebody on a more difficult treatment in the past few weeks? Of course, I've admitted patients to start treatment i've brought patient back for infusions if i had to but that would be a very small percentage of of my patients and as i said most of our patients we are lucky to have that luxury of waiting and or using drugs that minimizes their their exposure to 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 the healthcare facilities and just getting out of their house which is something risky these days i believe i'm at 15 minutes right now and i can wait for questions
1: Okay. Thank you very much, Dr. Shadman. That was really also excellent. And um, and also we're eager to hear you during the Q&A too because we want to hear hear more from you, so absolutely. Um, uh, you're someone else we want to hear more from, and uh, we can't get enough of you, so we'll add during the Q&A. I know there'll be questions for you, so uh, shortly. Um, and our next presenter is Ms. Patricia Kaufman. Ms. Kaufman is the co-founder and executive director of the CLL Society, Inc., She is um, a representative of the CLL Society, and she is actually uh, working with us here um, at Cancer Care um, on this particular program. We've we've been collaborating together for many, many years now. And she'll be discussing CLL Society's programs and and services and, and also talk a bit about their website. So it's my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Kaufman.
4: Hi, everyone. It's really great to be here with Drs. Brown and Shadman and, of course, Carolyn Messner and to be a part of another cancer care webinar. I sincerely appreciate the opportunity to highlight some of the CLL Society's flagship programs. I want you to know that the CLL Society is a CLL-specific nonprofit, and we are laser focused on meeting the unmet needs of CLL patients and their caregivers. We know that CLL patients and their caregivers depend on us for critical support and to obtain credible, cutting-edge treatment information. Our website provides tools that will enable you to advocate for the best possible care for your CLL and to develop a deep knowledge of the CLL treatment landscape, and we bring you into a community where having CLL is a normal part of everyday life. COVID-19 has not derailed the CLL Society, so don't let it derail you. To keep you well-informed on this topic, the CLL Society has hosted three COVID-19-specific webinars in which we brought together panels of hematologists who are experts in CLL, an infectious disease expert, a laboratory scientist, and a pharmacist who has CLL himself to answer a broad range of questions coming from our audiences. You will find all of this information under Archived Activities on our website, which can be found under Support and Education drop-down menu. Additionally, our 35-plus CLL-specific support groups have adapted to COVID-19 by transitioning their monthly meetings to online meetings using the Zoom platform. If you are not already a member of our CLL-specific support groups, please come to our website and register for one near you. Although we meet online, our groups are still organized geographically, so join our robust community today. Next, if you are not in the care of a CLL expert, we would like to invite you to apply for an expert second opinion through our expert access program. Research shows that there's a proven survival advantage to being in the care of a CLL expert. Expert Access is a free service designed to provide those with a CLL diagnosis who are not seeing a CLL expert an opportunity to spend 30 minutes in a no-cost, HIPAA-compliant, online, face-to-face con- consultation with a CLL expert. The expert will, will assess your CLL-related medical records and address your three most pressing questions. Our telemedicine partner will help you retrieve your CLL records to familiarize the expert with your case in advance of the consult, and then will help you formulate your most pressing questions to the expert. A written summary of the consultation will provide you with talking points to take back to and share with your current healthcare provider. Expert access will serve 150 patients this year. So sign up sooner rather than later, as this program is finite. Do you qualify? If you have a diagnosis of CLL, if you live in the United States, if you are not in the care of a CLL expert, then you qualify. This program is not based on financial need. It's based on whether or not you are in the care of a CLL expert. Dr. Brown beautifully outlined important tests that are critical to have when you are about to enter treatment. Those are the tests that can predict which patients will do well on or fail certain CLL treatments. At the CLL Society, we find that often these tests are not being done. And sometimes we find that they are being done, but their results are being ignored and we fear that patients may be receiving inappropriate therapies. These tests should inform each and every treatment decision, so we help you to be vigilant and be proactive. Please download our Test Before Treat one pager, print it out, take it to your next appointment, and discuss it with your healthcare provider. The CLL Society's quarterly newsletter, the CLL Tribune, features original articles which are contributed by our patients, caregivers, and healthcare providers, as well as our regular columns titled, Ask the CLL Expert, Ask the Pharmacist, Ask the Laboratory Scientist, and others. The occasional poem, work of art, song, and other things created by our readers will appear in future issues. We invite you to contribute questions and your original work. Other tools on our website include abbreviations and acronyms, a CLL glossary, a list of normal lab values, help in keeping track of your test results. And finally, I would like to mention that if you are recently diagnosed, please get your bearings by watching our archived webinar from earlier this week entitled Just Diagnosed? What Do I Need to Know?, which was presented by Dr. Neil Kay. We also provide breaking news. You can count on us for that. We know that smart patients get smart care. Thank you, Carolyn, for having me here today.
1: Oh well thank you It's great pleasure to have you here and um, really uh, just the the CLL society if you aren't taking advantage of their services, please do the ask the expert such a unique service all of them are terrific It is the only specific organization in the cancer SEER that only focuses on c l l so it's a great resource to everybody so please do um you know you will have at at the end of the program today by the way um you're in about well it takes about Probably by early next week, you're going to get an evaluation form. We certainly do want to hear your feedback of the program, but we're also are going to provide you in the evaluation with all the resources that were mentioned today so, um, so that you'll have them in addition to sort of take away from the program. So we want you to have all those. And this CL Society, all their resources and any other resource that was mentioned by anyone on the program today will be included, and maybe some others as well. And um, so I, I just want to say a few words. I'm Carolyn Messner. I'm an uh, ecology social worker. I'm director of education and training at Cancer Care. And I do want to say a bit about Cancer Care Services briefly. Um, cancer Care is a national organization. Um, we provide free um, emotional, social, practical, and financial assistance to people living with cancer. Um, it's all provided by oncology social workers who are professionally trained as social workers and specializing in the field of working with people who are living with cancer. Um, and so what do those programs look like? So we do have financial assistance programs. We do have a COVID assistance program. We do have a copay foundation as well. In addition to that, we also offer uh, support services to people, counseling services, uh, a chance to talk with somebody. Um you can do that either uh, by calling our helpline um, or, or visiting our website. And what that consists of is just simply picking up the phone and calling us or emailing Cancer Care and um, posing your question or concern. So you can talk with a social worker individually on the phone um, and actually um, and set up a, a, a series of appointments with them to talk about something that might be troubling you um, or you can also join one of our telephone or our online support groups, and we do have uh, specific blood cancer support groups, which might be of interest to people here, um, so that. Um, and also, we have groups for people of all different ages, so for older adults and for caregivers, um, and for young adults, because. The entire so we cover the entire lifespan of really helping people with these issues. We have a cancer care for kids program. We do have these educational programs as well, and uh, we do have publications as well, um, and um, and of course our website. So again, it's a free service, um, and please do take advantage of it um, and. Uh, and now we have time for questions, which is really um, a highlight, I think, of a program from all of you. So we're going to—I'm um, going to ask Norma to explain to all of you how to queue up the questions, and we're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. Some of you have already queued up already. So, but Norma, if you could explain this to everybody, so everyone has a fair chance to ask a question.
0: Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. If you would like to ask a question, please press star one on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered, or you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking ask a question.
1: And we have a question. Again, let's start
0: one to ask a question.
1: So we have a question first for Dr. Brown, um, uh, an online question. Do the cytogenic markers ever change over time in the absence of any treatment? For example, if one had 13q deletion and has never had treatment. Would it would it be necessary to check the markers before initial treatment? So, Dr. Brown, if you could address that question, I know it's an individual question coming from someone, but if you could address that um, in a way that's helpful to everybody, that would be terrific.
2: Sure. Now that's a very good question. So, I do always recheck the markers again prior to treatment because. Occasionally, something new will pop up. It's much less common to change during a watch and wait phase than it is after a treatment. But it still can happen in some of the older FISH studies, maybe 5 to 10% of the time. So not nearly as commonly as after a treatment, but it does happen. So I do it, again, as
1: people approach treatment, just to make sure nothing's changed. And um, we have a question from another one of our online participants, Dr. Shadman. If you uh, have a CL patient that is experiencing an AE, do do you recommend reducing the dose if permitted? If so, how much time would allow before deciding to move to another treatment strategy? Again, Dr. Shadman, if you could address this question in a general way, um just to be helpful to everybody if you can actually um yes that would be very helpful thanks dr shadman
3: yeah no of course I, I think it's a this is a very important question but also very general so i would say number one it depends on what kind of uh adverse event we're we're talking about right so if for example i give you the extreme example if i have somebody who had a major bleeding on on, on one specific agent for example of course, I'm not going to take any chances, and I'll most likely change to a different even class of a CLL drug because, you know, that side effect is very significant, and, you know, we don't want to take any chances. Uh, the other extreme would be somebody who has, you know, something that's maybe not life-threatening, but also uh, uh, important in terms of quality of life. You know, we have a lot of patients, for example, having issues with joint pain or muscle cramps and things like that, uh, I do try to to kind of adjust the dose and kind of make, make sure that I'm doing my best to keep the patient on the drug. One thing to remember is that as we get access to more drugs, we shouldn't be giving up on some of our great, I mean, all these great medications too quickly, just because... I have access to maybe two or two or three other medications it doesn't mean that as soon as my my patient experiences a side effect I just go to the next drug. so I do try to adjust the dose but I would say that the answer to that question would be very difficult it depends on what kind of adverse event we're we're looking at and it depends on where we are in terms of our treatment journey I mean is this somebody who has seen two or three types of treatment in the past treatments in the past and I have my options for my alternative options are limited, or do I have uh, more options for treatment? But as pr- in principle, for side effects that are not life-threatening, I try to do those adjustments and you know maybe use supportive treatment to take care of that adverse event and keep the patient on that drug. But if if I feel that uh, I'm not uh, making progress or if the side effect is significant enough, then yes, I do change it. The- treatment to a different agent, either in the same class or completely change the class.
1: Thank you. Um, thank you very much. Um, and if a question for Dr. Brown from one of our online participants. Um, why do drugs that once work stop working? So that,
2: in specific, mm-hmm. that would depend on a given drug. So, but in general, with all cancers, actually, we know that sometimes the cancer is sensitive to one drug but not another, and that over time, cancers do tend to become more resistant, and especially to a drug that they've had seen before. So, this is why we tend to use drugs, separate drugs in sequence. So, that's the, the general answer. And, you know, this has to do with the fact that probably what happens is when you get, when the disease gets treated with one drug, that drug kills all the sensitive cells. And it may kill most of the cells, but there may be just one or two resistant cells that are left, that those are what grow back and cause the relapse. And so then at the time of relapse, those cells are resistant to the prior drug, and you have to try a new drug. And so this happens pretty much with all cancers and all therapies. In CLO right now, we actually have some examples where there are very specific mechanisms of resistance that we are increasingly understanding. So I talked about BTK inhibitors. Well, so the most common mechanism of becoming resistant to those is having a mutation in BTK that changes the binding of the drug. And we also have the BCL2 inhibitor. And we now know that at least one mechanism of resistance to that is actually mutations in BCL2 as well. And I think the fact that we have such specific mutations Tells us how well, how good these drugs are, that they work so specifically and, apply, and are so effective against the target, the target has to change
1: to make the cells resistant. Excellent. Thank you. Thanks so much. And um, another question for Dr. Shadman. Um, this question is uh, Does the National Comprehensive Cancer Network or NCCN guidelines direct your treatment decisions?
3: Well, uh, the, the the short answer is yes, and the reason for that is that the NCCN guideline is basically a, a document that's prepared by a number of CLL experts who review the literature. And you know, when there is a clear answer just from the literature, then of course that that recommendation will, will get to the document and. There are few areas where we, we may not have the the evidence or the data to have a clear answer, and there you will have a discussion between those experts, and you know you kind of I mean they they come up with a with a consensus opinion to 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 kind of recommend. So in a way, the NCCN guidelines, in my opinion, is basically a very reliable summary of what what the literature and what the research has. Uh, taught us. So, yes, I, in, in principle, I, I do use that. You know, for, for all of us in, in clinical practice, there may be situations where you know, your recommendation may not match 100% with, with, with any guidelines, but that's just because every patient is different, and you have to, at the end, you have to use your clinical judgments. and you know, those guidelines don't cover every single patient in, in the ward, right? So, uh, but yes, the answer is yes. But there, there is always exceptions, like any other guidelines or recommendations that we follow.
1: Thank you very much, Dr. Shadman. That was very, very. Um, I hope that was very helpful to everyone on the call. Um, that great um, judgment and expertise of the physician treating you, who is an ex, who's a CLL expert, is really important. Um, and for Dr. – I have another question for Dr. Brown. At what point does CL become considered a refractory? So
2: we, we sometimes contract, contrast relapse with refractory. And so the traditional definition of refractory was based on chemoimmunotherapy and fludarabine. And so we said that the disease was refractory if it progressed during the treatment or within six months of stopping. And, you know, I think that remains a reasonable definition for therapies where you stop the drug, which include chemoimmunotherapy, as well as potentially venetoclax. For BTK inhibitors, if the disease progresses while the patient is still taking the drug, I generally consider that refractory rather than relapse. Relapse is something that happens after an initial and prolonged response, and usually more commonly when the, you're not on the drug.
1: Excellent, thank you. Um, and um, we have another question now um, for uh, for Dr. Brown, from one of our online participants. Um, So my CLL has recurred. When should I consider stem cell transplantation? Again, that's a general question, if you could just give some guidelines around that. Right. So
2: so that's very, very complicated, actually. You know, it depends on how old you are, how long you were in remission, how many other treatments you've had, the biologic features of the disease. In general, I have to say that we're doing many fewer transplants than we ever did before. Even in the case of, you know, the highest risk situation with 17p deletion, even in young patients, we usually will start a BTK inhibitor, and some people can have very long remissions on a BTK inhibitor. So, we don't usually do a transplant at that point, and we know we have venetoclax after the BTK inhibitor. So... It would be the earliest we would consider it, even in the highest risk situation, is usually in response or very early progression on the venetoclax. And so, if the if the disease is lower risk, you know, not having those very high risk markers, you know, sometimes we might not consider transplant at all. Like I said, it depends on, or you know, not until we've been through a BTK and the disease is refractory to BTK through venetoclax progressing, Uh, you know, then we can often use combinations or clinical trials to still get a remission. So just recurring wouldn't, and particularly if not on treatment again, would usually not constitute a reason to rush toward a stem cell transplant. But I would encourage you that if that's something that's been raised for you or that you're thinking about, that you definitely should see a CLL specialist. To discuss that.
1: Excellent, thank you. And um, this will be our last question for Dr. Uh, Brown. Um, can you share a little about the ramp-up period for venetoclax and how it affects um, your patients? And again, that's Right. So, venetoclax. The primary side
2: effect of venetoclax is that it can cause something called tumor lysis, and that's where the cells die so quickly they release byproducts into the blood that can be dangerous. Now, the the risk of that, we have sort of a model where we look at the risk of that low, moderate, or high risk of problems with that. And so high-risk people, we actually will admit to the hospital for one or more of the escalations. And even some moderate-risk people, especially if their renal function isn't quite normal, we might consider admitting to the hospital. But oftentimes, for most patients, it doesn't require hospital admission, and We usually will have the person come in early in the morning, have labs done, take the pill, and then we observe them and give them IV fluids and then check labs sort of six and a half to eight hours after. And if those look okay, then they can go home and come back the next day and get labs the next day. You know, honestly, people don't really have symptoms or problems at all. It's just kind of the hassle of having to come in, you know, this is for sort of two consecutive days for potentially five weeks because it's 20, 50, 100, 200, 400 that you have to do this escalation. And so it yeah, it's mostly the time commitment and hassle. But then, you know, what you get in return uh, are the drug is very well tolerated usually. It has very few side effects in terms of symptoms that people have, fewer than really any of the other oral drugs. And you get a very deeper remission and the potential of stopping rather than staying on continuous therapy. So that's sort of the balance. But, you know, certainly some patients, especially older patients might not want to make the commitment of all those visits or the hospitalizations. And that's perfectly fair. And that's, you know, one of the things that we take into account when we consider our treatment options for people with people.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Brown. And I want to thank our speakers, um and i um i have to say that what's clear on this call today from all from our speakers is their incredible knowledge of c l l but also their um their knowledge their expertise uh, but they're actually the art of uh, delivering care as well and it's very apparent in their compassion so i want to thank them uh it's been a phenomenal call um and uh so i um and I know there are many more questions in queue, so I do want to, um, in, in wrapping up today, I just want to kind of wrap up by saying a few things. Uh, first of all, I know some of you still have questions that have not been answered, and even those who asked questions, we still recommend that you take the information you learned back to your treating health care team um, with the information you received today, um, and or even ask your health team the, the questions you've asked here. But in addition to that, I know that many of you like to go to credible resources to find out information about CLL. Obviously, many of you are information seekers. You wouldn't be on this call today if you were not. So clearly, I think the CLL Society is a wonderful resource to go to. They do have lots of information, and if they don't have it, they'll refer you elsewhere in terms of medical information. There is, of course, the National Cancer Institute as well. And, again, when you get your evaluations, you'll be getting information about all the other resources that we could recommend. Um, But we will certainly highlight the CLL Society as a a major resource to go to. For those of you who wish to pursue just getting some additional help from cancer care, whether it be financial assistance, whether it be practical assistance, whether it be a chance to talk with one of our oncology social workers on the phone or online, or whether it is to join a support group, one of our blood cancer support groups, um, either on the telephone or online, you can simply contact us and we'd be happy to be of help to you. As we conclude the call, I would, I would very much like to think that hopefully by being on the call today, you don't quite feel so alone. It is normal to feel alone, And particularly with social distancing, people do feel alone. But I also want you to know there are a lot of places out there, organizations, groups, support groups, um, that you can participate in and feel a sense of community um, in dealing with CLL. That's really important, and I want to leave you with that thought. And I very much want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all.